They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to be put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may, be, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Raquel. Well, good morning again. Welcome to First Free. Uh, my name is Matt. If I haven't met you, I serve as pastor here. And um, excited to be with you. Would you pray with me as we dive into this text this morning? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for who you are, that you are God who speaks, that we have your words written down, and that by your spirit you are still speaking today. May we hear you this morning. May you give us clarity. Keep us from all distraction. That we may sense and notice you and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, <clears throat> well, I started cycling about just this past March. started riding my road bike and... Uh, I love it. It's become one of my favorite things to do. It's exercise, so that's good. But uh, it's also like kind of meditative, and it's good for my mental health. And also when you're going really, really fast, there's lots of adrenaline pumping, so it's just pure fun. I've been loving it. And um, it's one of the ways that uh, Danny, one of the congregants here, and I have connected because he's more and more into cycling as well. And we decided to train for this big event this past summer. And on our first ride together, when we were training, we said, you know, what's the longest ride that you've done? And we were kind of sharing stories. Neither of them were that long. But he went on this one ride, he said, where I accidentally went really, really far. I biked too far out without planning for it and then had to bike home. Didn't bring, you know, enough water, enough food to have energy and all that. And when he shares the story, he says that he basically, all he remembers is waking up in his bed at home. He doesn't remember necessarily how he got home, but he woke up safely, 
in his bed, and his bike's there. And uh, he can't really remember the last mile or so. We might say that he sort of made it home on autopilot. On autopilot. And um, his memorable experience was of a moment where he sort of shut off, but something was still guiding him home. Maybe you've had a similar experience driving where you, you pull up, you're home, and you don't really remember what happened the last few miles. You're not really cognizant of every single turn you made or even what you were listening to on the radio or turning your blinkers on or things like that. The drive was a blur, but you arrived safe and sound. Kind of like autopilot. can also work in other areas of life. Maybe, have you ever, maybe you haven't, but have you ever had a conversation with someone Or someone was talking to you, but you weren't really listening. And then you wonder how the conversation got to the point it did when you finally start listening again. Like, maybe you've had to ask someone a question like, hey, can you please, can you repeat that last thing you said? And they kindly do. And then you realize, oh, I actually need them to repeat like five or six statements before that. Because I still don't even know how they got here. That's all forms of living on autopilot. More all-encompassing, it can come about when in life we feel kind of numb, zoned out often, uh, maybe bored, maybe feeling kind of lifeless, kind of like we're merely existing instead of really living. That's life on autopilot. Making unconscious, automatic decisions that don't align with how you actually want to live. Well, if that's you, you're not alone. Uh, Very recently, a couple of uh, folks did this survey of 3,000 people, and 96% of them said they feel like they're living on autopilot. If you're still not sure if this is you, I want to read uh, this list of 10 signs that you may be living on autopilot. And to be fair, at least four of these, when I was reading through it, really struck me. They really convicted me personally. Um, So here we go. This is what they said. Number one, you dread the day ahead. You wake up and dread the day because there's nothing you're really looking forward to. You don't feel excited or inspired to get the day started because you have a pretty good idea of how it will go. So number one, you dread the day ahead. Number two, your daily routine is predictable. You could practically tell someone how you'll spend your entire day a month from now, two months from now, three months from now. For example, you could tell them exactly where you'll go, what you'll do, who you'll see, even what you'll eat. Number three, you do things without thinking. You take action without stopping to think about what you're doing, how you're doing it, and why you're doing it. Your decisions and actions have become so automatic that it takes little to no thought at all. 
Number four, you can't seem to put your phone down. You automatically check your phone for updates and mindlessly scroll through your emails or social media feed at any opportunity you get, even if you just checked it. Number five, you stay deep in thought. This is kind of the other end of it. You constantly catch yourself deep in thought, thinking about things that aren't currently happening when you're doing something else. Basically, mentally checked out in la-la land. Number six, you have a difficult time remembering. You're not fully present in the moment, and so you don't remember those activities that just happened. Again, could be things like driving, eating, having a conversation, one that you should, you know, remember. It's easy to forget the little things and feel mentally mushy at times. Number seven, you can't seem to let go. You do what's familiar even though you know it's not serving you anymore. For example, you keep the same unmotivated and unambitious people around. You stay in the same career, hold on to the things you've outgrown, live in the same place, and do things that don't really inspire you, but you're just used to it. Number eight, you're not making meaningful progress in your life. So let's say you set goals, but you never actually make progress towards them. Weeks go by, months go by, and you're not really focused, even though you make the goals, on what's most important to you. Number nine, you say yes more than you say no. You often agree to things you don't actually want to do and then dread the decision later. Instead of carefully considering your options, you've made yes your default answer. So maybe you say yes to working late, to hosting the family gathering you didn't actually want to host, to watching the kids when you know you needed some time alone, to going to the party when you need to stay home, whatever it is. Say yes more than no. And number 10, you know there's a better life to be lived. You believe your life could be more joyous, but you feel stuck in your current situations. You know deep down that you've settled in too many areas of your life, and you wish you would have taken a different path. Do any of these resonate with any of you? Are you living on autopilot? The thing is, we're creatures of habit and routine, and so in some sense, autopilot's okay, right? You can't be mindful of every single decision, or you won't be able to be present for the actually important ones, right? Like, we live in a day and age where if you go to the grocery store, you have to make a decision which of the 15 brands of mayonnaise you will buy. You don't need to be super present for that. You can probably just pick the Hellman's again, or whatever, Um, but... The problem is this autopilot that helps in certain areas of life can very easily bleed into all areas of life. So while it's helpful to have some things on repeat, thoughtless, can very easily go to places where we need to be mentally present. Like our deep relationships with our friends, our family, our God. When we live on autopilot all the time, it comes at a serious cost. Our ability 
to be meaningfully present and attentive to God and one another. In fact, around 1,500 years ago, when we might think it was easier to be attentive to the things we need to be attentive to, uh, St. Hesychius, the priest, Hesychius of Jerusalem, there's a different Hesychius from back then, a different guy, but this guy, he said this, the demon's unremitting purpose is to prevent the heart from being attentive. For they know how greatly such attentiveness enriches the soul. And around a hundred years ago, the French uh, mystic and philosopher Simone Weil, she said, prayer consists of attention. It is the orientation of all the attention of which the soul is capable toward God. Living on autopilot is having our attention sort of dispersed in all directions. And so the problem isn't just that we're tempted to live on autopilot sort of internally, like, oh, it makes life easier if I don't have to think about certain things, but there's also these strong external forces at work. One pastor, Ben Sternke, he says, so much about the modern world propels us towards inattentiveness because it's very good for profit margins. He says, if I don't examine my loneliness and seek to understand what it is and where it comes from, it's much easier for someone to sell me a solution, like a new streaming service or something on Instagram. He says, quote, we could go so far as to say that capitalism is an enemy of attentiveness, and thus an enemy of prayer. He says it pressures us into mindless consumption and conformity to behaviors that merely maximize the bottom line of corporations that have no interest in holistic human flourishing. Wow, so friends, this kind of life, the life on autopilot, the sleepwalking life, the absent-minded life, the un- or inattentive life. It's hardly life at all. It's certainly not the abundant life that Jesus invites us into. See, Jesus invites us into his way of life, the Christ way of life. It's a whole way of life. Think back to when he calls his first disciples, right? He says to them, come, follow me. Same invitation he gives us. Come, follow me in my way of life. He says, walk with me. Work with me. This is Eugene Peterson's translation of of Matthew 11. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's the Christ way of life that Jesus invites us into. And what's happening in our scriptures today is Paul is showing us how that way of life, that Christ way of life, the way of Jesus, is crucial if we are to live as a reconciled community. 
This letter that we've been reading for the past few months, this letter that Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus, is all about reconciliation. It's about the community, our reconciliation with God, the way Christ on the cross saves us, this vertical reconciliation, and it's about our reconciliation one and another, this horizontal sort of reconciliation. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, again, I'm going to keep hitting home this, that God made known to us the mystery of his will to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The heartbeat of God is to bring things back together. Okay? And in Ephesians, in that community, Paul narrows in on how God's work in Christ brings together the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Two communities that did not belong together based on their prior ways of life. He tells us in chapters 1 to 3 of that letter how Christ's reconciling work on the cross actually makes one new humanity out of those two people groups. And now, in chapter 4, Paul starts getting really practical. Okay, so that's what happened sort of cosmically, theologically. Well, how do we actually live in a way that is one new humanity? Paul knows that for a community of difference to exist in any meaningful way, we have to live amongst each other in the way of Christ. So, this is what Paul says to us. I'll be going through the text somewhat slowly. Um, It'll be on the screen often, but if you have your Bibles or the Pew Bibles, you can pull open Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility, the uselessness, of their thinking. That word futility comes from the Latin word uselessness, this other Latin word that has to do with like a cracked vessel, something that no longer had a use because the water will just seep out of it. The futility of their thinking. The message translation there says, no more going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. In other words, Gentiles, you used to live on autopilot. You used to live mindlessly. You used to live in the dark. You used to live separated, inattentive, ignorant, unaware of the life of God. Your heart was hard. In the language of St. Hesychius, your heart was prevented from being attentive. Remember, that was the demon's purpose, he says. So verse 19, having lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. 
When you lose sensitivity to something, you need more of it to feel anything, right? I uh, have a friend, Drew, who I forget a lot of the details of this story, but here's where it is. He's either riding his bike or on a skateboard. He's going down a hill, a grassy hill, and he's trying to impress, I think, his girlfriend, who's now his wife. He's going down this little hill. He crashes quite seriously, and the result from the crash sort of messed with his nose, and so he can't smell anymore. He can't smell anymore. And every time Drew and I would eat food together, he would have in his backpack his own hot sauce. And he would have to put on an absurd amount of hot sauce just to taste anything. Because, you know, when you can't smell, you can't taste that well. Um, And so Drew needed to put all of this hot sauce on himself. Because when you lack sensitivity, you can't engage in the thing the way you used to. When you lack sensitivity or have lost sensitivity, as the text says, which, by the way, sensitivity is just the ability to notice something easily. Right? Like, think of someone who says they're sensitive to the cold. They're going to notice the cold perhaps before someone who's insensitive to the cold. They notice it easily. Or someone who's sensitive to their emotions or somebody else's emotions, uh, they're probably going to notice those emotions before you. Um, that, that's all being sensitive is, the ability to notice something easily. What you do with that um, matters, but that's what it is. So when you've lost sensitivity, you've lost an awareness of yourself or others. And Paul is saying when that happens, when someone has lost sensitivity, they're probably going to indulge, he says, in impurity. In other words, what is unhealthy in order to feel anything at all. Like my friend Drew, he indulged in an impure amount of hot sauce so that he could feel anything at all, taste anything at all. And spiritually speaking, whatever that is will never be enough. And so we become greedy and need more and more and more. And that's why greed is is right in there. They're full of greed because they can't notice what's right in front of them. When we live on autopilot, it comes at a serious cost. Our ability to be meaningfully present to God and others. And not only does it affect our own connection with the life of God, but also it affects our connection with the body of Christ, with the church. And that's where Paul continues on. So in verse 20, that life, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, your autopilot, numb, inattentive way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new 
in the attitude of your minds to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God invites us into a new way of life. A new way of being in the world that mirrors the life of Christ. He invites us into the Christ way of life. He says right in verse 24 that we are to put on the new self, which was created to be like God. Verse 25. Therefore, he's saying, because your new self is created to be like God, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. Okay. Imagine a body. Again. Let's say, imagine your hand, and you're grabbing something really hot. Uh, We'll say a cast iron skillet. But your hand is no longer communicating honestly. It's no longer speaking truthfully, to use Paul's language, with uh, the nerves in your arm, with your brain. And so your hand just stays there, burning and burning and burning. Or if your eyes see something real tasty, let's say the cardamom bun at Los Larson. But uh, it communicates with your mouth, and your mouth starts watering, and then your mouth tries to communicate with your stomach, but your stomach is like, nah, I'm going to lie to your brain and say that I'm not hungry. Well, then you don't get to eat the cardamom bun. Not good. Not good. On a more serious level, right, some of us have experienced uh, trauma in our bodies. So we actually disassociate when experiencing different kinds of touch, whether it's uh, pleasurable or painful, because certain parts of our bodies then no longer communicate truthfully with other parts of our bodies. There's a, there's a lack of true connection happening there. It's often the case with, with sexual trauma or physical abuse. Because of a past experience or experiences, our body doesn't think it's safe to really feel something and communicate it to the other part of our body. And it reacted this way in the past to protect us because it really wasn't safe. And, and so maybe if you're experiencing a lot of pain, you want to stop feeling that pain so your body says, I'm, I won't communicate that with the rest of your body to protect you. But we still have the same trauma response in the present based on something that happened in the past. It causes our body parts to falsely communicate with one another. It's not that we're intentionally and consciously lying to ourselves. This isn't all rational in our minds. But the reality of a past experience isn't the reality of the present experience. And in that sense, it isn't true. The the communication isn't true. And the good news is that our, our bodies, our brains can be rewired so that past trauma is no longer dictating our present reality. Like freedom actually is possible. Healing, 
wholeness is possible, but this is often long, slow work with a trained counselor. So put this into play the way Paul's talking about the body as the church. Oftentimes in the church, there's past traumas that are affecting the present communal life of the body. Perhaps in a church, it wasn't a safe place to to talk about something, whatever it was before, and so we unconsciously don't speak about it now. Paul is saying we are all members of one body, so we need to honestly and truthfully speak to one another, to communicate, to share what's going on, so that the brain and the foot and the hand and the ear know how to care and respond, how to interact with one another. Nobody, at least in our church, can read minds, right? I don't know what's going on in you unless you tell me, and vice versa. Unless we communicate with one another, we won't know. There needs to be open and honest communication. This is how the body becomes healthy and has any ability to then be a healing agent in the world. This now is where we connect those ideas of autopilot and attentiveness from earlier on. Because before you can truthfully communicate to someone what's going on within you, you need to be aware of it. That's why Paul is saying to these new Gentile Christians, don't live like you used to, on autopilot, mindlessly floating through life, numb, He says they lost all sensitivity and so they gave themselves over to sensuality. They lost the ability to feel, to be aware and awake to what's really going on in the world and in themselves. When that's the case, you cannot have a healthy community. Paul continues in verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Why is this right here after this? I think because Paul knows that when we're honest and aware with God, ourselves, with one another, that anger is going to show up. Anger is an appropriate response to sinfulness and brokenness in ourselves, in our world. Anger is an appropriate response when we become awake to ways that we were not protected in our past. When we come face to face with the ways that perhaps our parents or our pastors failed us. When we become aware of the ways, aware of the ways that we failed others. When we become aware and awake to the ways that systems that we participate in proliferate injustice, we should be angry. Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. If a church is going to function as a healthy body, the anger cannot be suppressed or swept under the rug, pretend that it doesn't exist. I feel uncomfortable when I'm angry, so let's just pretend it's not there. If that happens, it comes out sideways. 
you end up with a community that's passive aggressive with one another or a community that just doesn't want to sit next to certain other people who we know will instill anger in us. We try and hide it. It comes out as gossip, slander, cruelty behind one's back. And this grieves the Holy Spirit of God. So we have to become comfortable with noticing our anger and letting it dissipate, letting it go. Let it tell us what we need to hear from it, and then let it go. Take note of it, and let it go. Then Paul says, do not let the sun go down on it. Now, I was told at one point that this is basically advice for marriage. Don't go to sleep if you're angry at your spouse. And then uh, I tried that a few times, and it, it just didn't work that well, and uh, the thing is, if you're tired and angry, it's probably not going to get resolved (laughs) in any real way. So I'm not sure that's what Paul is trying to get at. I don't think he's giving necessarily marriage advice right there, but I think he's hearkening back to what he said a few verses ago about being darkened in our understanding. Now he's playing with it, saying, don't let the sun go down. Darkened in our understanding, having lost sensitivity. In other words, don't try to cover up the anger or forget about the anger or silence the anger until you've actually listened to it, learned from it, and decided to let it inform how you pursue love and justice in a Christ-like way. Don't fall asleep to it. Don't let it lead you to sin either, but acknowledge it. It's there for a reason. Then Paul says, verse 28, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Here Paul highlights two behaviors that destroy community. Stealing, unwholesome talk. And he replaces them, sort of inverts them, with practices that build up. If you're good with your hands, good enough to steal, use them to build something that profits the community. If you notice yourself using unwholesome talk, he says, use it to actually use language that builds others up, that it may benefit them. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. There we see what happens when anger turns sour, turns into Rage, which is never helpful, anger, brawling, slander, malice, bitterness. Instead, verse 32 be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul closes this chapter, that final verse in chapter 4, with that most important practice 
for community reconciliation. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. And if you're at all like me, you want to jump to that step a little too soon. But we can't. I think what Paul wants us to know, what he wanted the Gentile Christians to know, was that you cannot forgive on autopilot. It requires us to deal deeply and attentively with the ways we've been wronged and the ways we've wronged others. May God open our eyes to see. This is the Christ way of life. Now, I want to offer you something uh, tangible that can help you if you feel like, yeah, maybe I am sort of living on autopilot. The reality is all of us are to more or less degrees. Um, But this is something that might help you to to, uh, snap out of autopilot. Yes, snap. Okay? Uh, Perhaps... Perhaps you can join me. Can we all just snap? This will help us to remember this little acronym, okay? Thank you. If you can't snap, that's okay. At least you tried. Uh, I couldn't for a large part of my life. Anyways, this is an acronym that Ian Morgan Cron developed. Um, He is a Christian psychotherapist. He's a pastor, counselor. And uh, he talks about snap. The first... S there is to stop. See it up there. Stop, notice, ask, and pivot. Okay? That's how you snap. He says, what he does is he creates an alarm on his phone. His goes off three times a day. One time a day is probably plenty. I use an app called One Minute Pause that automatically sends off Uh, a reminder on my phone. But the first part is stop. Put something in your life that will remind you to stop on a daily basis. Whatever it is, set set an alarm on your your watch, on your phone, have a reminder pop up on your computer if you work at a computer. Something that will help you to stop for two or three minutes. That's it. It's It's not a huge commitment. Two or three minutes to give your full attention to what's happening in that immediate moment. Does that sound easy to you? It's not, actually. It's super hard because everything in our frenzied, goal-oriented world militates against pausing for even a few minutes to switch off autopilot and consciously come home to ourselves. Everything wants us to keep going. I guarantee wherever you set that timer to go off, you will always feel like there's something else more important that has to get done. But I encourage you to stop. He says, take four or five deep prayerful breaths to ground yourself in your body, return to the present moment. The purpose of that step is simply to wake up Bring your awareness back to your immediate experience. Stop. Then, notice is the next one. It's super easy to get swept up in the rush of daily activities and habitual 
reactive behaviors, isn't it? But rarely do we step back to observe and learn from them. Once we come to a full stop, first step, we look around to see what's been missing while we're lost in our thoughts or absorbed in our work. Just like pay attention, notice. Is the environment around you calm? Is it frenzied? Is it hectic? Uh, How are you connected to what's going on in that moment? You might notice and take note, am I personally in a good space right now? Do I feel anxious? Am I caught up in some sort of unhealthy, self-defeating perspective or behavior? And now, what's important in this notice section is that whatever you do notice, you notice it with compassion. So don't start judging it yet. Just notice it, take note of it, write it down if you're a journaler. Let it exist. Don't label it. Don't analyze it. Don't criticize it. Simply notice. Nothing else. Then, step three is ask. Now that you're awake, aware of what's going on in the moment, you can ask yourself three questions that will expose any unconscious beliefs and get you back on track. So he illustrates these questions when he talks about writing his book. He says he was, he was working on a really tight book de- deadline, and he had a case of writer's block. Well, he stared at the blank screen for hours until he became an anxious wreck. Right? The deadline's approaching. This book needs to be written. Nothing's happening. And then, of course, in that moment is when his reminder to snap popped up on his phone. And he's thinking, there's no way I'm going to do this. I have a deadline. I need to get this thing done. But he stopped for a second, yanked himself away from the computer, sat away from it, and began then with this first question. What am I believing right now? And uh, it might seem like a simple little question, but it's, it's really powerful. He says, after a few moments of prayerful, quiet reflection, he started to realize some of the unconscious beliefs that were contributing to the writer's block and to his anxiety. And this is what he named. He said, Everyone from my agent to my dog will feel irreversibly disappointed in me if this book doesn't hit a bestseller list. That was one of his beliefs, he realized. He realized people only value me for my work and accomplishments in life, not for who I am, so this book better be a masterpiece. He was believing that. He was believing the world only loves people who succeed. No one loves a loser. So he recognizes, I'm believing all these sorts of things uh, when he's noticing and asking himself, what am I believing? Now, this is a person who's a pastor and a therapist. They should know better than to believe these things, but they show up in our lives, sometimes just below the surface of consciousness. And depending on your life, your work, you might deal with some of these beliefs or other beliefs that are just unhelpful and untrue. We have to identify and challenge these untrue beliefs underlying the ways we think, feel, and ask, and act. So then he asked himself the second question. First was, was, what are the beliefs right now that I'm believing? Second is, are these beliefs true? And hopefully you have uh, people in your life who speak truth to you. You have the scriptures in your life. You have the spirit in your life who are speaking truth so you can identify when you're believing a lie. 
he realized, oh, these are not true beliefs. These are rooted in my old personal narratives, in what Paul says in his scripture today, the old self, the old way of life. The life that if we don't become awake, we live on autopilot. Even as a Christian, we'll keep living in the lies of our past. Yeah, those old, archaic scripts, we just keep believing them if we don't become aware of them and able to say, this isn't true. This isn't what God says of me. This isn't what my community thinks of me. This isn't what the scriptures speak to. And so finally, the third question, how would my life change if I let go of this belief? Identify the belief, you recognize is it true or not, and you ask yourself, how would my life change if I just stopped believing this? Because sometimes you can, in that moment, just say, this is a lie, I'm not going to believe it anymore. You'll need to be reminded again the next day and the next day and the next day. But in that moment, you can make that decision, and your day will be different. And uh, he realized, you know, well, if I am free from these over-exaggerated, unrealistic, fear-based expectations... I could probably write the book that I'm supposed to write rather than the book that I think everyone else wants, uh, the book that will somehow magically solve the next war and bring world peace. And then the fourth is to pivot. Pivot. You've identified the beliefs. You've interrupted them with truth. And then you can pivot, change, make a decision, make a healthier choice in that moment, make a more helpful choice that's in line with the truth of what God says and what the reality of God's world is. So I just want to encourage you with that little snap. Uh, Hopefully it's helpful for you. He says this final thing. He says, your beliefs become your thoughts. Your thoughts become your words. Your words become your actions. Your actions become your habits. Your habits become your values. And your values become your destiny. So it is no waste of time to stop, to snap. Take those moments to address what am I believing in this moment. Friends, all of this is simply meant to help us Embrace a life that's attentive to God. To notice that Christ is actually present with us in our day-to-day lived realities.